Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It got real for Wall Street yesterday with S&P 500 equities gapping lower off the back of several headlines around the impeachment inquiry. I want to bring in Laurie Calvacina of RBC. She heads up the equity strategy division over there. Laurie, what changed for you yesterday in the last 24 hours, if anything at all? Well, look, I, I think, you know, talking to investors about what happened yesterday, I think there's still a state of disbelief. You know, questions I was getting are, is this real? What will really change? I think the street is still digesting this. But you did see a negative reaction in the market, and we thought yeah. that the stage was set for a pullback anyway before year-end. This is bringing some of the potential triggers for that into focus. Laura, the regressor forward is the earnings call for October. We spoke with BMP Paribas yesterday. They've got an exceptionally cautious view on equities, and it centers back to earnings. What is your earning uh, call at RBC and how does that fit into owning equities today? So we're at 165 for this year, 174 for next year. You know, I think that the, the concerns about second half earnings expectations have died down a little bit. I do think there's yeah. going to be some tariff adjustment that has to happen. Generally, though, companies have been finding a way to sort of deal with this, these issues in the short term. I think the real issue, frankly, is next year, I think earnings expectations are way too high. The street is still at 10%. I'm at 5.5%. I have what I think are pretty reasonable assumptions on GDP growth slowing a bit, uh, buyback slowing a bit. Those numbers are going to have to be cut at some point. And my guess is we do that before the year is up. Laurie, I know you're doing your best to look through the political unknown. I also know you're adding just a little bit of cyclicality, pulling away just a little bit from the defensive sectors in the equity market. Give us a little bit more detail on that. So, look, I think the move in bond yields that we saw, you know, sort of late August, early September, and that vicious style rotation that we saw was a little bit of a wake-up call. Um, and I think we do, you know, sort of, we have a lot of concerns, especially on the tariffs in the short term. You know, I'm not convinced that this is necessarily a turning point as, a tipping, as opposed to a tipping point in the economy. That being said, I think we're trying to look through the day-to-day trading. We're trying to think about, in three or five years, what will we have yeah. wished we did today? And we simply found we kept talking to investors about industrial stocks. We think they're pricing in um, pretty onerous outcomes. You're literally back at financial crisis lows if you look at a relative P.E. against the broad market. So we think Mm -hmm. that you shouldn't be so worried about what this quarter is going to look like. Take advantage of the fact that they've been de-risked. And we actually think you should be taking money Mm -hmm. out of consumer stocks where all the good news and resilience is baked in. Lori, thank you so much. Lori Calvacina, RBC Capital uh, Markets. Here at the Bloomberg uh, Global Business Forum, This is joy, John, because this is as John Taft did in his book a number of years ago about stewardship. And what is so wonderful here with the descendants of the Mars family of Minnesota from years ago is they got together. They had the courage to mate with Wrigley of Chicago. And I remember the emotion of that day. Stephen Badger joins us right now of the Mars uh, family and driving forward the Mars Wrigley story as well. The company is not Mars Wrigley. It's Mars, right? Mars Incorporated, yes. I mean, 
it's so interesting what you've brought in. You've brought in dog food. You've brought in the, the, the chewing gum and all that. Are you the dominant confectionery player now in the world? Well, we would certainly in any given market be the leader, and, and we have some of the leading brands in the world uh, with M&Ms and Snickers and so forth. See how he did that? He went, I can't straight, concentrate. Straight in with a plug. I can't concentrate Stephen, uh, what was it like growing up in a family like that, with, with that kind of business around you? Well, you know, it's a normal family. It really is. Uh, you know, and normal families uh, go through normal family issues. Uh, that being said, we were very clear that uh, as we matured that we uh, had a responsibility with regards to the business uh, and the associates that we have. And, and really, we're here today at Climate Week because of that responsibility. We, we see the, the science that uh, has been out for some period of time and which, which is only getting clearer about the threat to the climate that uh, there's a real and significant issue that needs systemic change and transformational action to really address the issue. And so I think one of the great things that, that we grew up with and that I carry with me today is that sense of responsibility. So talk to us about the kind of things you're focused on at the moment. What are you guys doing to address that? Well, we've had for many years uh, in place what we call our Sustainable Generation Plan that we uh, are spending a billion dollars on. Uh, we have also are spending a billion dollars on what we call responsible cocoa sourcing. And we're here this week to really advocate for the fact that we need to all collectively step up the actions needed to address climate change. The issue is only ever more serious. I would suggest you're in the crosshairs here on two items. One is you make small items thing, a pack of uh, Wrigley's uh, spearmint gum, the one my father had for years, or you make the famed candy bars, which got me through three years of my youth. I get that. The Mars bar, folks, is the one I always went for. You've got the little units of sustainability along with the messaging to children. You're hit over the head constantly about sugar. You know, we, we don't need to get into that today. But how do you handle sustainability given the responsibility of kids in your small unit production? Well, if you look at the totality of our business, whether it's gum or, uh, or chocolate or pet food or, or other brands like Uncle Ben's, all of those products, by and large, rely upon smallholder farms around the world uh, for their ingredients. Explain that with a pack of gum. How does that work? Well, mint. Mint is, is okay. uh, the key ingredient in one of the key ingredients in gum. It's grown by farmers uh, in the U.S., but also by many farmers in India uh, who are struggling to uh, deal with the effects of climate change and in, in, uh, in their growing operations. And so helping them actually become more sustainable to generate a greater income and also address issues like women's empowerment uh, in, at the local level is key to the ongoing sustainability of products like that. You can be incredibly focused on sustainable production and then all of a sudden I imagine there's a line of banks and a line of investors knocking on the door and telling you you can do it better, you can make more money. How do you keep slapping them away year after year? Well, the reality is if we don't deal with climate change, if business doesn't face into the reality of climate change, there, there will not be a future as we know it. Uh, so for us to have a sustainable future, we have to spend money on this issue. And that's what we're committed to doing, both through uh, the commitments that we're making and trying to galvanize the industry, as well as through our own commitments with our business. Got to get to the sensitive topic as well, not just about sustainability and climate change, but as Tom mentioned, sugar, the war against sugar, the obesity epidemic in this country and in other countries in the developed world as well. What's your role going to be 
in all of that? Well, obesity is a global issue without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, and we're a food business. And so we have a great responsibility to ensure that we're marketing uh, and selling our products responsibly. We have a marketing code that's been in place for many years and we uh, adhere to that strictly. And it's all about how we position our products, uh, particularly in terms of confectionery as treats that are, are to be enjoyed on occasion as opposed to, you know, daily, so to speak. Then what do we do about the kids where it's not daily, it's not portion control, the corporate messaging? What do we do about the X percent of any nation's kids that don't have that discipline around them? Well, I think it's about uh, trying to be clear as to what the role of a food business is, what the role of government is, and what the role of parents are. Uh, it's a collective issue. No one actor can solve it. But what we can do is we yeah. can take responsibility for our part, be very clear about that, and try to galvanize the industry to, to step and, and up John, in the same well, regard. I, I 100% agree with this. And the thing is the parents have to have a massive discipline here. So when the Snickers is developed... I get half, you get half. Is that the way That's it works? That's a key now. So you teach them about And the tax? time we've got left, i got to talk. And this is wonderful that you're here, Steve Badger. And we celebrate Friday, folks. I'm thrilled that Ken Burns will be with us with this magisterial effort on Nashville and country music. Everybody in the music industry goes, thank you, thank you, thank you, Stephen Badger, for what you did with the House of Wilson Pickett. Muscle Shoals is beloved. There's a sound. There's an authenticity there. It goes back to Hammond B3s that did things that no one had ever heard before. What was it like to put together your wonderful film on Muscle Shoals? Well, thank you. You're so kind to reference that. It was uh, it was tra- it, w- it was incredible. I mean, it was a, it was a, an emotional journey, a spiritual journey, a lot of hard work, and it was a great joy and honor to be able to engage with the folks in Muscle Shoals and the other yeah. artists who made that and, come Andy alive. Andy Leck has this wonderful movie, Cadillac Records with Beyonce, and in it, they've got the Stones show up in 1960, whatever, like children from England. Did you talk to Mick Jagger or any of the stones had, about Muscle Shoals? I had the great pleasure and opportunity to talk to Keith and to Mick uh, and they they couldn't have been more gracious and, and um, have a greater love for Muscle Shoals than you know, I, I, than I would have expected. And and more more recently, in terms of uh, some of the heroes mm-hmm. of Muscle Shoals, Rick Hall, the dear Rick Hall has passed away. Jimmy Johnson just passed away. I so, didn't know that. So yeah. to be able to capture yeah. those guys on film bef- before that, uh, yeah. that transpired was great. Sounds like he's got a terrible job. Yeah, it? it's Steve terrible. Worst yeah. job on the planet. I mean, Chuck Laval's been a wonderful friend of the show out playing with the Stones keyboards. He's with us once or twice a year on his different charities in the Amazing South. Musician. And he talks about the room sound. Of, I mean, it's all about the room, isn't it? It's, it's, it's tone. a concrete block, right? Yeah, it's tone. It's tone. Yeah. Absolutely. Steve, a final question in. I, I it, it comes from home. It comes from my mom. Oh, your mom. Good morning, now, Mrs. We, we Farrell. We go back many decades. The Snickers bar used to be called the Marathon Bar in the UK. Oh. Are we going to make that change again? Can we have a special edition? I, I wish I could say otherwise, but no. We, we moved it to Snickers because we're a global business. We operate in 80 countries uh. and there just are some efficiencies that come along with My mom with still refers to it as the marathon the Yeah, yeah. Well, there's well, God bless her. God bless her. <laughs> this is, this is a, can we tell company secrets here with Steve Badger? Please do. Carry on. I come out of a meeting every morning, usually with steam coming out of my ears, and the only thing that saves me is I wander by the desk of the 106th mayor of New York. Who's eating m There's a small candy thing, and it is a Mars <laughs> container. And Mike Bloomberg, every single morning, saves me with a Twix. Well, thank you. We, we, we need to make sure that he's uh, yeah. uh, well-stocked going into the future. Hey, Stephen. Great to catch up with you. Thank you. Thank you. Stephen Badger of the Mars family. Fascinating conversation, Tom, yeah. and much more coming up.
this is an annual visit. We're going to crowbar him in here right now. Dr. Ferguson, of course, is public service at the Federal Reserve System, serving uh, Chairman Greenspan, and particularly on September 11th. His esteemed academics, his public service to the Economic Club of New York, I should point out, I get to enjoy the lunches Roger Ferguson serves at the Economic uh, Club of uh, (laughs) New York as well. But I really want to devote this entire time with Vice Chairman Ferguson to his true expertise with TIA and his public leadership on, I don't know if it's the number one problem in the nation, Roger, but let's just begin by saying retirement in America is in a terrible, terrible state. Good morning. morning. We, We talked to you a year ago, and my frustration is just do something. How close are we to a Roger Ferguson? I mean, you're one of the most impatient guys I know in the the crucible of a meeting. How close are we to Ferguson immediacy in slow motion Washington? Uh, Look, I think we're a long way away from it, frankly. Uh, On the other hand, there are some green shoots that might give us some optimism that we're turning to this really big, important long-term issue. So... um, why do I say we're a long way away from it? Every congressman, every senator must have the constituents saying, look, it was all best intentions, but actuarially it has not worked out. Right. For anybody of any given age, the incentivizing of younger people, the middle age, those confronting the failure of ERISA 74, the do something is front and center. Why is it slow motion in Washington? It's slow motion in Washington because this is one of those really long-term, slow-moving challenges. It's not an immediate crisis. Washington, I think, is wired towards the immediacy of the headline. And this challenge is, to use a cliche, a bit of a melting iceberg. And society, policymakers, et cetera, all turn their attention much more slowly to these slow-moving challenges. The second reason why it's, it's a little bit difficult is the answers are all difficult. Um, you know, the figuring out how to fix Social Security means for sure uh, maybe touching retirement age, which people are uncomfortable increasing retirement age. It may mean cutting benefits for a certain number of people. It may mean increasing taxes. All of those are tough calls. Uh, politicians are not wired towards making the toughest calls very, very quickly. So, Dr. Ferguson, just for our listening audience, could you scale out what you think is really, again, kind of the scale of the issue, the problem, some, just some broad numbers? Okay, so let me start with uh, my f- uh, friends, former colleagues of the Fed. They've come up with numbers of a shortfall in retirement savings of anywhere from 4 to $7 trillion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's a massive number. Yep. Uh, Another way to think about it is only about half of Americans have access to uh, a retirement savings at work. So that's the second way to think about it. That's stunning. It is stunning. Mm -hmm. Uh, Third way to think about it is something we already know, which is that more than half of Americans couldn't get hold of $400 for an emergency. And so there are lots of different ways uh, to scale uh, this problem. Is this problem... Gotten worse? Is it? How has it evolved over the last couple of generations? Well, it's actually gotten worse. So okay. here's here's what's happened. Uh, for our grandparents' generation, the vast majority of them had a retirement plan at work called a defined benefit plan. Now, only about 10% of Americans have a defined benefit plan. So the vast majority of Americans now depend on a so-called defined contribution plan, and that has pushed risk from the company to the individuals at a point when we know individuals have a low level of financial literacy. So 
the problem well, has become more challenging. If you're just joining us, the former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve System, Roger Ferguson, with us, an annual visit here at the Bloomberg Global Business Forum. And we're thrilled to focus on his true expertise and leadership in America's retirement crisis. The Times of London, two weeks ago, Roger, the business section, the big headline, the annuity, you get a retirement pot, you buy a life annuity for you and your wife, whatever, the annuity at a number of 4.1%. We are nowhere near the proper actuarial assumption, are we? That's exactly right. Uh, and that's yet another thing that makes us challenging. So in an interest, a low interest rate environment, lower for longer, maybe lower forever, there's no doubt that generating those returns have become more difficult. There's a solution to that, which is a broadly Please. diversified portfolio. Right? And so people think of retirement as being driven by fixed income and think of low interest rates, but the reality is a really good retirement will be driven by fixed income, by alternatives, by equities, thereby giving a chance to get to a much more sustainable uh, retirement income. And so one has to think about you know, the basic rules of investing, apply for retirement as well as anything else, and diversification is one of those basic rules, which will help overcome the challenge that we're currently seeing. So as we think about, you know, thinking about some of the a solution to this grand problem, which uh, is so complex, it sounds like it might be one of those situations where it's some combination of government, of corp the private sector, of educating the individual. I mean, it right. seems like it's, it can't just be the government stepping in. and No, no. And the reality is to rethink retirement involves three separate components. Uh, government, for sure, because the government drives Social Security, and here we need to think about reforming Social Security. The Social Security administrators have told us that the trust fund uh, will be you know, pretty much out of, out of gas, so to speak, uh, uh, completely uh, utilized by 2017, uh, I'm sorry, 2027, 2030, something like that, maybe a little further out. Uh, and so we do need government solutions in that space. Um, the government can also help by setting up rules and regulations that help create more savings in the private sector. So there's an act now in Congress called the SECURE Act. Uh, has been passed in the House, has not passed the Senate. That would be very helpful in creating a more safe and secure retirement. So we need to get government acting yeah. in that way to increase uh, the private sector. Can I ask a dumb question of the day? No such thing I as a do, dumb question. I no. do an ERISA defined contribution, whatever the program is, I get immediate tax savings, which can build the growth, and down the road I end up paying the taxes due to the government. Why does the government, why are they so reticent to let anyone put more money into their account if they know they're going to get the money eventually? Well, you put your finger on it. It's actually the time value of money, and so their concern They're is that broke? <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, delaying trillions of dollars in taxes until all of us get to be 70 or 72 is not to be taken lightly when you think about the state. Uh, the fiscal situation in the United States. And so, you know, the tax view around retirement has always been we're willing to let you defer. Yes. But until a certain age. And then, you know, at 72 and a half, they require these distributions in part to make sure they get the taxes paid. Well, they're going to get the taxes paid down the road. We've got X percent. What, what number of people across the broad American wage-paying 1099 W-2 landscape are below their actuarial assumption? It's a big statistic. It's a big statistic at this stage. What, where is the urgency if there's no cost to the government other than, as you correctly state, the time value of money? Well, that, that's part of the issue. And, it, you know, the urgency is starting to come from the citizenry as we all get older and older. 
and we start to recognize the insecurity right. that we I, face around retirement, and that's going to drive what happens in Washington. I mean, Paul, the number of people I know older than me <laughs> who are seriously looking to move abroad because they can't afford to retire here. Those are tangible numbers. Well, I've heard people thinking, you know, obviously it's always been Florida, but even North Carolina, low-tax states, things like that, but I haven't heard uh, going oh, yeah. abroad. They're, they're moving to Panama, Costa Rica, Thailand is very popular. Is that right? Yeah, you know, Italy. I mean, Roger's I'm got the I'm thinking of my condo in, in Del Boca Vista down <laughs> in, you know, but, that's yeah, kind I, of not. I mean, Texas is very popular, right? Yeah. These low-income states are very, very popular. What, what is the study that you have researched at TIACREF about across different deciles of the American population if you say you can put in all you want, do they put in more money? Uh, the answer is it depends. Um, and so what we see for the younger individuals is because of the student loan and student yes. debt issues, yeah. they are delaying retirement and delaying putting money <clears throat> into retirement. Right. Middle-income folks tend to be doing better, and obviously the older individuals are Saving doing even better. Saving with a frenzy. Saving with a frenzy, perhaps mm. because they started too late. Um, yes. And so what this is all ending up with is another study that we did recently that shows us the degree of financial insecurity is very yeah. high. So we surveyed yeah. a bunch of folks and only about a third of them said they were feeling secure about their retirement. We, so we've got challenge. people listening worldwide. Al from New Jersey emails in and says, would you talk to him about something that matters? Because Al's got his retirement all set up. <laughs> I, I believe <laughs> Vice Chairman Ferguson, I, I, there's any number of ways to go with a beleaguered Chairman Powell, the criticisms of the Fed and Fed independence. We've got the repo uproar of the recent days. I want to talk to you about something that you're quite good at, and this is off of uh, your esteemed work at Harvard, which is the experiment of negative interest rates. This wasn't, this wasn't on the chalkboard at Harvard, was it? This was not on the chalkboard at Harvard, nor was it on the chalkboard at MIT or the University of Chicago. So <laughs> the, we are in uncharted territory. Uh, $16, $17 trillion of debt carrying negative interest rates. <clears throat> Never a place that we've studied uh, right. And frankly, I think not a place any of us ever expected to be. Let's take the dynamics of someone as competent as Richard Claret of Columbia, who has your shingle out at the Fed right now, yep. and the expert on DSGE. We won't go into that because we're at the plaza where it would be unsightly <laughs> to speak of something. So there's like that sculpture over there is half-dressed, Paul. Yeah. This here is at the plaza. What is this about? This is family <laughs> entertainment. Um, Vice Chairman F uh, Ferguson, the glide path from negative to whatever normal's going to be, can we do this with stability? Can the drift function, the reaction functions be in control? I think that's a really strong and important question, right? Uh, we saw a few years ago when uh, then-Chairman Bernanke mentioned normalizing rates, there was a so-called taper tantrum, mm -hmm. where markets got very excited. Um, about the possibility of normalizing. So yeah, I think there are some red, some yellow flags saying as we move in Europe, not in the U.S., but as Europe tries to move from negative to more normal rates, you know, a lot of that economy has gotten used to negative rates, and the possibility of some instability cannot be ignored, can't be discounted. What do you think so the think path is for some of these European economies that are experiencing negative rates and have for some time? What is the path for them to get to more so, look, what the Europeans, I think, are working to try to do is to get two things happening that haven't happened thus far. First, get their economies, particularly their largest economies, you know, off of this borderline area where a few of them might, one might argue Italy, maybe Germany are in or close to recession for a variety of reasons. Others may be slowing. They also are working hard to get inflation, as others are, back closer to their targets. 
once those two things start to occur, then you'll be able to start to mm. see rates normalize. Uh, the same thing is also true in Switzerland. So this is a right. big macroeconomic challenge, yeah. and they've been at this right. place and fighting this for long periods of time. And, you know, we wish them best because uh, the European economy is one of, or could be, one of the, uh, one of yeah. the drivers for global growth. I know when you were on the Charles River, you didn't, you ignored Chicago and microeconomics. Not at all. Cost. <laughs> we had a conversation with uh, Dudley of the New York Fed the other day, the microeconomist from Berkeley. And it's really interesting to see the behavioral function and the microeconomic dynamics of something like the repurchase agreement upward. Right. Do you have confidence in a New York Fed and John Williams and the new team there to get oh, it done and do it right? Absolutely. I have a high degree of confidence in John and the team at the New York Fed. I think what they're confronting in the repo market was you know, trying to understand the amount of reserves, this right. sort of technical, that have to be held uh, by the Fed to get the market itself to do its business, uh, to set the repo rate the right way. And this is new territory for, for the Fed. So one would expect mm -hmm. to see every once in a while just a little bit of mm -hmm. uh, the rough edges as the markets and the Fed get used to a new process. But they're moving in the right direction. I have a high degree right. of confidence in John and the team. Did President Bush the Younger ever tweet out on Roger Ferguson? <laughs> I, I think of the crucible you were in in early September of 2011, no, 2001. It wasn't funny. You didn't have to put up with presidential tweets, right? Well, I'll be honest with you. Um, you know, there has been periods on and off uh, presidential pressure on the Fed. Um, this one is highly unusual in that it is so public. But mm -hmm. if you go back to the history of the Fed, well, LBJ, you know, LBJ, Richard yeah. Nixon, those yeah. you know, come over and have a quiet talk moments. <laughs> um, and so, you know, not surprising given how powerful the imagine? Fed is to have these kinds of pressure. Can you imagine the pit bull Roger Ferguson on the balcony of the portico there having a quiet conversation, <laughs> giving it back? Yes. Yeah, but one of the things you have to recognize is Jay Powell has been very clear about protecting the independence of the Fed. Yeah. So we give the Fed, I give the Fed, and others do, oh. you know, a lot of, a lot of credibility right now, right. Uh, putting up with some, you know, tough and difficult times. Roger Ferguson, thank you so much, particularly with TIA, this conversation on retirement in America. Uh, this is a joy, and he has come to us on impeachment short notice. He is Professor Sunstein of Harvard University. For anybody that knows me, he was way out front on impeachment, and I made it a book of the summer. It is readable. It is short. It is must, must read on this strange word. And the joy of it is Cass Sunstein, who has been affiliated with Republicans and Democrats, of course, his recent public service to President Obama, kept the T-word out of it. He does not mention President Trump in 175 pages of your need to understand the word impeachment. Professor Sunstein, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, great pleasure to be here. Cass, your book is so important. You begin with James Madison and waltzes through the founders and then to the modern age. How did the comments of Speaker Pelosi yesterday link to the impeachments of Clinton and Nixon, or will this be a new and discreet process? 
I think they linked pretty well in the sense that the general tenor of her remarks were connected with the, I think, legitimate inquiry into President Nixon and the questionable inquiry into President Clinton. I think that's how it's best understood from the constitutional point of view. I think she got out a little in front of her skis. That is, she was a little too uh, uh, decisive about um, breaches of the constitutional firewall, let's call it, by President Trump uh, pending an investigation. Probably it's good to be more cautious and um, inquisitive rather than categorical. And she said he violated his oath of office, which, and let's just bracket the question whether that's true, that's not the constitutional standard. Mm -hmm. uh, the constitutional standards, high crimes or misdemeanors, and you can, you know, not take care that the laws be faithfully executed by making a mistake, right. honest or even zealous, and you can't be impeached for that reason. Truman did that. Uh, most presidents have made mistakes, honest or, or not so honest, and that doesn't mean they're impeachable. But generally, she was in the ballpark. Are we anywhere in the vicinity of the high crimes and misdemeanors? I think of your dog, Snow, let out into the, the mud of Concord, Massachusetts, in the muck, and there's a high crime and misdemeanor. Is President Trump anywhere near the Sunstein definition of high crimes and misdemeanors? Well, I, I want to defend my dog that she <laughs> did, you know, uh, maybe make a number one or number two in a way that was a little illegal, but that was not a high crime in misdemeanor. That was just uh, inappropriate let's call it. Um, in terms of President Trump, I'd say that uh, we need to know more about the facts of the most recent concern, which seems to be what Speaker Pelosi is principally focused on. So if it's the case, as the president says, that there was an appropriate conversation in which he mentioned, let's call it the B word, uh, Biden, uh, but he didn't put any pressure on or suggest any quid pro quo in terms of financial aid, uh, then there's really no basis for impeaching President Trump in that conversation. Uh, if it's the case that it was explicit or implicit that he was uh, wielding, let's say, the uh, taxpayer funding uh, possibility or not for Ukraine uh, as a uh, inducement to investigate a political opponent, uh, then we have a, a very severe concern and the inquiry and possibly, you know, a follow-up in the form of an article of impeachment would be completely legitimate. So, Professor Sunstein, there's an argument out there that uh, is being floated that the real issue that the Democrats should focus on is the mere fact that the president made a phone call to a foreign head of government uh, suggesting, you know, to interfere in our elections by uh, investigating uh, a political uh, opponent. It wasn't necessarily the quid pro quo it was just the mere phone call asking for interference. Does that ring true to you? That's uh, in the ballpark. And, you know, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, the, it just is not legitimate. Let's bracket the impeachment question for the moment, and we'll get there very soon. But it's not legitimate for a president of the United States to uh, talk to the head of a foreign country about investigation of a political opponent, yeah. uh, e even in a context in which there's no quid pro quo. And uh, to get to the impeachment question, it's not as clear as if there's an inducement, but if the president in a context in which withheld funds are kind of the elephant in the room, well. is, uh, and, and the president saying that, then uh, let's just say that both Republicans and Democrats um, uh, appropriately explore the impeachment question. And I say this with um, 
you know, with uh, uh, awareness of the uh, severity and gravity of, of mm-hmm. even the word. But, but that, the president can't do that, can't say in a context in which uh, everyone knows that there's an economic background to this and there's a right. economic relationship, can't say, investigate a political opponent. Cass Sunstein of Harvard Law, we're thrilled that he could be with us today and really can't say enough about his wonderful book, Impeachment. It is a sprawling walkthrough of American history from the revolution to the present day on impeachment. We're thrilled to have with us today Cass Sunstein. This is a joy as we've spoken with Roger Ferguson, the former vice chairman, with Cass Sunstein of Harvard on impeachment, one of the moments uh, of, of this September. We speak to David Lipton now, who I believe is title as of this. I'm looking at my watch, and I think we've got like a two-hour tick as acting managing uh, director. David Lipton joins us uh, now, certainly and without question, Dr. Lipton, the American representative to the uh, International Monetary Fund to get an update. And it is truly a day of celebration for the International uh, Monetary Fund. Kristalina Georgieva uh, of Bulgaria, truly a frontline academic, will join the IMF. Is it in a matter of hours, Dr. Lipton? Yeah, this week is a big week of transition for us. We have Christine Lagarde departed. We'll be celebrating her this weekend. We expect uh, Kristalina Georgieva to be approved by our decision body, Mm -hmm. the executive board, in a matter of hours, and she'll be managing director starting Monday morning. It's an extraordinary transition of geography, and and tone is is well. uh, The uh, former leader of the World Bank, of course, esteemed in international economics uh, for years. What is the shift like within the institution? Is it just business as usual? Well, we're very good at transitions. This happens uh, quite a bit. The institution is used to it, ready to help her uh, take the helm. You know, you're right. She has vast experience. Not only is she from Europe, but her experience across emerging and developing economies in her work uh, in, 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 uh, the, in Europe and at the World Bank, I think gives her a huge reservoir of support from our membership, uh, really very broadly emerging market countries. <coughs> correctly say this is the first uh, yeah. uh, managing director from an emerging market, uh, Bulgaria. So everyone's very excited, and I, I, I'm looking forward to this transition myself. I, I remember the first-rate Bulgarian mathematics of the Quran School at New York University, and the academics are just extraordinary. I find it fascinating here within the tone of modern capitalism, like Angela Merkel coming out of East Germany, that uh, 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 that Kristalina Georgieva came out of the Karl Marx Higher Institute <laughs> of Economics. It may, I mean, there's a, this is a real shift. Well, I mean, you this have, is you not have thesis, antithesis, and now we're going to have synthesis. Ah, that's our takeaway. It's really interesting, Paul. Please, <laughs> David. So, as the new managing director comes in, David, what do you think is the one of the key challenges facing the IMF right now? You know, we see. Uh, uh, risks to growth in the short term, and we've had a period of slowing growth in the core economies for a number of years. You know, after all, just two years ago, global growth was closer to 4%, and now right. it's closer to 3%. So in this era where there's questions about integration and interconnectedness and multilateralism, the challenge is to get our members to cooperate, to uh, ward off the risks, to try to secure continued growth, 
uh, and to promote faster growth <coughs> in the future. So I think it'll be a growth orientation uh, achieved through international cooperation. One of the threats to that growth orientation is uncertainty that we have in the global economy, yeah. principally from trade issues and uncertainty about global trade. How does that play into kind of uh, the mandate at the IMF? Well, we do see trade tensions and the oh, uncertainty <laughs> around that as, as the number one risk. Yes, okay. But, but you know, and, and that it is important that the U.S. and China sit down and resolve this through dialogue. And I think that will mean China having to deal with some of the shortcomings in policies yeah. that are um, causing spillovers, that are causing discontent in other countries around the world. But that said, there are other uncertainties too. Brexit is a huge uncertainty. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, th th there are geopolitical uncertainties in the, in, in the tensions with Iran, various others. And so if uncertainty is uh, allowed to continue, this slowdown in trade, which is bringing a slowdown in investment, may become uh, a crippling problem for the global economy. It's not our base case. Our base case is for continued growth. Um, and it really is uh, important that the <coughs> world work together to try to address these uncertainties right. and not have unforced errors. Well, let's get out front of the, uh, the meetings that you'll have here in a number of weeks. You'll release a World Economic Outlook, the Green Book, the Stability. I can't remember the color of the books right now. You keep changing them, I mean, David. But the bottom line is what our audience wants to know, our global Wall Street audience wants to know, is the second derivative right now. I look at Korean export-import numbers, the German numbers. The other day, I'm not asking the acting managing director to have these memorized, but you're very aware of the gamma, the convexity, the accelerations that are out there right now. How urgent is it? I think that the way to think about this is that uh, with the trade tensions, we're seeing trade, investment, and manufacturing slowing, and that's very broad. But at the same time, consumer sentiment, consumer spending, and service sector is very strong. And so the question is, wh what will happen in the future? Will the um, difficulties in the business sector eventually impair consumer sentiment and slow things down? Or will the mm -hmm. consumer strength uh, and service sector strength eventually uh, help pull business up? That's possible if we're able to reduce uncertainties right. for the future. So I think the, uh, you know, to me the bottom line is uh, growth is slowing, uh, risks are growing and policymakers need to get going and that rhymes and it's easy to remember. <laughs> so, David, well, David Lipton with us of the International Monetary Fund, the acting managing director here uh, as we celebrate. Kristalina Georgieva uh, of Bulgaria will become the new managing director replacing Christine Lagarde. Uh, Christine Lagarde will become the president of the European Central Bank. I'm not going to ask you to get out front of negative interest rates in the ECB. <laughs> that would be rude. But I can I ask no, you... Fine. I can't ask you, David, the questions of our uh, Buenos Aires office. They have a lot of questions of how the IMF will handle the original experiment that is Argentine uh, political economics, even social economics. What's the next step for the IMF with an ever-dynamic Argentina? You know, Argentina's situation right now is extremely complex. They've had a shock based on the political <coughs> results of a, uh, of a primary, mm -hmm. and in that setting have had to take some very strong measures to try to calm things down. And I think they have calmed markets down. So our job in this setting is to help them get through this period, give them advice, work towards uh, an, an eventual uh, uh, 
resumption of a relationship between, of, of some kind of financial relationship with them, which may have to wait a while. Um, but we're, we're in discussion, they are, the minister uh, is uh, going to be in Washington uh, having discussions with our team uh, shortly, and we'll be continuing those discussions at the, uh, the annual meetings that you mentioned that come up in, later in October. You know, we're trying to help Argentina deal with a very difficult situation, and they're working hard to do that. David, do you think the political will exists in Argentina today to move that country you forward? You ask the rude questions. <laughs> <laughs> Argentines want to stabilize their country and resume growth. I think everyone shares <clears throat> that. Uh, it's not our business to try to... Uh, 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 divine the political path forward, we can't do that. But we're standing ready to help whichever uh, side wins the presidential election and uh, help them find the best way forward for the sake of the Argentine people. The hallmark of the modern IMF is transparency of data. What do you do in any given nation where you have a quoted, in this case, Argentine peso, in a black market set with a greater depreciation. How yep. does an institution like you deal with the multiple markets of currency or yield day to day? Look, there are places where data are, are a big problem, like Venezuela, where the data flow uh, has stopped. But that's not the case in Argentina. We've dealt with countries that have parallel markets in many, many circumstances before. That's not a big challenge. You know, they've had to put on capital controls in, in the midst of the market developments that they've had. And when you have capital controls, of course, some people try to um, uh, look for another way to uh, move money out of the country and parallel rates uh, arise. Uh, I think that's something that we can uh, monitor and we can help them over time uh, deal with. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I think the bigger, the bigger issues there are how to uh, calm the markets and stabilize the situation so that uh, there can be a an administration after the election that makes longer-term plans and policies that can help uh, bring stabi lasting stability and growth to Argentina. You mentioned that it's a very complex issue, obviously. Is there any sense of timing based upon your discussions with the administration of maybe how this might play out? No, it's too soon to, too soon. to be able to say that. I mean, we, we, we're having discussions with them. Those will be continuing in Washington this week and then again mm. during the meetings. You know, their election is coming up later in October. Uh, it's, it's just uh, not right. something one can foresee. If you're just joining us, a few more minutes with David Lipton of the International Monetary Fund, of course, out of Wesleyan and Harvard, has sterling economics over the years. And I always, David, love to go back with you to your tenure with Jeffrey Sachs on Russia. Could we get, you have a visceral, I would suggest you and Professor Sachs have more of a visceral understanding of the Russian economic experiment out of 1989 than anyone breathing. And give us an update on Putin economics in the, the strength of Russia right now. He had a difficult Moscow election. Granted, that's a one-off. But give us an update on Russia is a frontier economy, an EM economy, or a G8 nation. Yeah, the, the Russian economy has been managed very well from the standpoint of macroeconomic stability. They've been very careful about their uh, maintaining a s sound budget. As a result, they have almost no uh, federal debt uh, the, the, you know, President Putin has given strong mandate to his central bank governor, Navyulina, to uh, make sure that inflation is under control. That's not the issue. They have, as, as a result of their, the oil situation and the uh, 
economic situation and the sanctions, they have a low growth rate. When we project their growth rate forward, we see it as lower than or roughly the same as Europe in per capita terms. <coughs> now that, what that means is we are not foreseeing Russian standards of living catching up or going in the direction of catching up to Europe. That's a problem because their, their, their standard of living is lower than Europe and they should be able, they should be aspiring to raise that standard of living. So I think the challenge <coughs> for Russia is the broader long-term business model question right. of what is their strength? Where they, they, they are a country with great uh, education and great technological prowess. The question is how to build a system that has a stronger private sector drive in the adoption and use of technology in ways that will bring prosperity to Russia. That's the challenge. I think they understand that. Uh, but that's the challenge. But this is fascinating because uh, uh, with you and Jeff Sachs at the nascent capitalism uh, of the collapse of the Soviet Union, you go to the era, I'm going to say, of the oligarchs or whatever that means. How do you perceive Russian capitalism forward? Do they move beyond the early models of the 90s and the 2000s? Well, I don't know quite how they get from where they are to what I'm talking about because I think it does mean uh, having a system in which there's a more vibrant private economy with true competition and uh, corporations that are able to uh, compete with global counterparts mm -hmm. and be modern and it's I think it's not happening su sufficiently at this point and uh, to me the, the challenge for them is to find a way to have a more uh, vibrant vigorous dynamic private sector. David, are we seeing direct private investment in Russia today? Just give us a sense of, are companies, Western companies, investing in Russia? I think it's modest and more modest than before the, uh, the uh, uh, conflict in <coughs> Ukraine, which right. led to okay. sanctions and uh, great hesitancy on the part of uh, uh, companies from a number of Western countries uh, uneasy about their participation. David Lipton, thank you so much. We look forward to all of us at Bloomberg to your meetings here in thank October. You. Is, I'm going to say this to the acting managing director. One more time. Do we, one more time. <laughs> Till Monday. Uh, as we truly celebrate uh, the changing of the guard at the uh, International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Georgieva uh, will take over as managing director, of course, frontline economics from Bulgaria. Dr. Lipton, thank you so much for joining Thanks, uh, Bloomberg Thanks, Surveillance. Paul. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.